You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with me this week. I am very, very excited to bring you this episode with my dude, Chris Gill. Chris has worked in, well, we get into it. That's that's really the point. I brought him on because I wanted to dive into his past. He came on a while back to talk about the book he wrote about Eddie Van Halen with his co-writer, Brad Talinsky. It's called Eruption. You may remember that episode. It was a really, really good episode. But Chris and I hung out after the recording of that, and we just kind of shot the breeze for a little while, and I realized, you know... This is going to be a great solo episode. So I had Chris come back on to hang out and we talk about his record label days. We talk about partying on the Sunset Strip. We talk about the time that Motley Crue tried to kick him out of his seat and it didn't happen. We talk about all kinds of awesome stuff. So I don't want to spoil it because he tells the stories way, way better than I do. But you're in for a real treat of an episode. But before we get into it, just a little bit of business. I just want to remind you, if you're doing any holiday shopping please check out ToneMob.com slash Sweetwater or ToneMob.com slash Reverb for any of your purchasing needs. They really, really do help a lot. And if you're planning on buying gear for yourself or for somebody you care about, if you could use those links, a little bit of that purchase comes back and helps. And it really, 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 truly does. Additionally, if you need strings, you know you can go to StringJoy. And that also helps me as well because I'm a partner in that company. So if you could help me out, I can keep bringing you this content and keep this weird little tone-filled pirate ship just chugging along. I would really appreciate it if you could do that. And I would really appreciate it if you like this show, if you like this episode, I would really, really appreciate it if you shared this show with a friend or somebody you think would enjoy it. Spotify just did their wrapped, and this is the first time they've showed me this data I mean, they've done raps before and showed me other things, but this is the first time I've seen this. This show is in the top 5% of podcasts in the world that was shared on that platform. And they check whether you copy a link or send it to Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or wherever. And they note that and they send that information to the podcasters at the end of the year. We can't see you or your data or anything like that, but they do tell us, hey, you hit this milestone. And the Tone Mob podcast was in the top 5% of podcasts on the planet that was shared by you guys. So if you could keep that train rolling, I would really, really appreciate it because it really, truly does not happen without that. So thank you so much for everyone that's done that. It means so much to me that that is something that was even possible. I mean, this little show, it's a decent sized one in the guitar world, but in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty small. But thanks to you guys, it keeps growing. And I really, really appreciate that. So anyway. That's enough business. Let's get into this episode with my dude, Chris Gill. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have returning Mr. Chris Gill. What's going on, dude? Hey, I have a, a nice rainy day out here on the East Coast. So <laughs> <laughs> nice rainy day here on the West Coast, too. That's just cool, uh, huh? tis the season, right? Share the love. <laughs> <laughs> Spread it around. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming back on. For the listeners who m- maybe are newer, 
Chris came on quite a while ago with his partner, Brad, and we talked about their Van Halen book that they wrote. And that's pretty much what we focused on the whole time. But the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'd really like to talk to these guys individually and just talk to them about them because you've been doing the guitar media thing forever and yeah. I'm I'm kind of you know, I feel like I'm an old dog sometimes, but I've only been doing it since 2015. So I want to know like what the what the landscape was like in the before times and like how that's translated. And I want to talk to you because somebody like you has got so many really rad experiences, some of which we did talk about on the previous episode. Right, right. But, you know, I kind of want to get your story less so than the people that you've interviewed. I want to hear about you. So, like, what's your backstory? How did you come to be as obsessed with the instrument as we we both are? And how did that lead you down your chosen career path? Oh, man. Uh, you know, it, I started like pretty much. Well, it's kind of weird. I started off as a kid, like wanting to play all these different instruments. Initially, I wanted to play slide trombone for a while because I thought that was cool for some strange reason. <laughs> and I saw some kid on like, I don't know, it was Mike Douglas or something like that playing drums. And then I wanted to play drums. And eventually I thought, ah, oh, the banjo seems like something for me. Okay. And five string bluegrass banjo. And, you know, my parents checked around on it. They talked to a few people and says, oh, it's kind of intricate. And maybe it's better if he starts off on guitar and works his way up to it. So got a Yamaha nylon classic, classical guitar and started taking guitar lessons and really liked it, you know, and um, eventually I got that banjo. Uh, but it was kind of at this turning point, you know, where you're going through puberty and everything. And um, suddenly the banjo ain't <laughs> is cool. You know? <laughs> and um, I was taking banjo lessons at the store in Escondido, California. This great guy named Woody Zuell ran the store. I think it was like Woody's Music Emporium or something like that. Uh, it, it was kind of like my, it's where the seed was planted essentially, because I, before I was even taking lessons there, I used to shop there and I bought my first copy ever of guitar player magazine with Yorma Kakanen on the cover and everything. And, um, just, you know, started reading guitar player magazine vor voraciously and wanted to play electric. And, you know, I tried out a few guitars he had in the shop. And still kind of kicking myself. I, I got a great guitar because I really wanted a Gibson. That was like, it was the mid seventies and Gibsons were just what players wanted. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. I was waiting for a good Gibson to come in. And one day this, this mid sixties SG came in while I was taking my banjo lesson, you know, it was in the shop and I saw it before as I showed up and I see him like, Oh gosh, there it is. You know? <laughs> and, um, you know, it was like sweating through the lesson because I had the money for it. You know, I did worked and everything and painted fences and collected golf balls and all this other stuff. And, um, all these people were coming in and like, Hey, let me check the Gibson out. Cool. You know, ASG. Hey, can I take it to my band tonight to practice? And Woody's like, no, no, you can't do that. Like my lesson kept on getting interrupted. And these people were just all like, I knew it wasn't going to last. And as soon as the lesson was over, you know, I told them I want that guitar. You know, <laughs> here's my checkbook. I want it, you know, mm -hmm. sold. And um, I, I think he was kind of bummed because he's like, oh, shoot, I lost another one. <laughs> you know, like he wanted electric. to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, he lost another banjo player to the lure of the electric. You know, oh, because it's like, got you. Got you. Yeah. Because it was like after after I got that, there was like no looking back. It was all electric for me. And I mean, that was, you know, forming a band, you know, trying to impress girls, that whole thing. So stuck with that, you know, and of course, 
by this point, we're getting into the era of, um, you know, Van Halen, you know, that's mm-hmm. just, just a big major moment for me. I mean, before that, I was, I had already gone to concerts, went to see Boston with the Runaways was my first concert, followed by oh, nice. the Cult, and then a whole other litany of shows, you know, all with great guitar players in the bands. And of course, I was reading Guitar Player Magazine and just soaking up all this information on these other players like Al DiMiola and John McLaughlin and, you know, Chet Atkins and Merle Travis, you know, and all of these players from all these different genres and really going out and finding those records and listening to those people, going back in history, listening to the Yardbirds, you know, and listening to the old blues and everything. And at the same time, I'm keeping up with stuff like Van Halen. It was just like, you know, my other guitar playing friends, we all had a big competition to figure out Eruption the first, (laughs) you know, so that was just, um, that was like a a major driver. So um, Guitar Player Magazine kind of got me into the whole thing. Well, it was two things that got me into collecting. One was the Jeff Baxter's column in the back of the magazine. He, He had something about, I think it was about collecting. Well, actually, okay, three things, three things. That got me into collecting. Jeff okay. Baxter's column in Guitar Player Magazine, uh, Ian Hunter's Diary of a Rock and Roll Star, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. talks about going to all the pawn shops and finding guitars and everything like that. It was just it was so romantic and cool to me that I just I got into that aspect of it, and then seeing Cheap Trick with Rick Nielsen, it's showing up on stage with about twenty guitars all on stands up there, all of them cool, you know. And it was just like, and he had vintage guitars and he had custom guitars and everything like that. So I just went off on a quest that I'm, I'm starting to collect. As soon as I, every dollar I get is going into gear, you know, buying new guitars and whatever, old guitars, whatever I can find. So I got the collecting bug. Uh, fast forward a few years. I'm at college. Um, I'm looking forward, the, the, looking through the newspaper. I, I, I did a couple of things. Like I used to write a lot about rock and roll music, you know, do music reviews, concert reviews and stuff for my high school newspaper. And I did that at college at first. I kind of went around to a couple of colleges, ended up at UCLA. I was looking into the paper and I saw an internship at a record label. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I'll go there, you know. Perfect. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I show up for the interview and I'm talking with the guy. Uh, Steve Brack was the guy there and he was a promo guy. And um, as soon as I mentioned that I'm a writer, he's like, okay, you're in, you're hired. We want you to come in, you know, three times a week if you can, you know, whenever you can. It's like just as soon as I said I was a writer, that's like they needed someone to write press releases and to write letters and things like that. And um, I basically took over our college promotion um, department. So I would send out records to all the college radio stations. Okay. Okay. And at this time, they had just signed Joan Jett, which was really cool. Um, so we put out the Bad Reputation album. She, you know, she put it out independently. And it's kind of an interesting thing because Joan Jett was like one of the very first guitar players I saw right. at a real bona fide concert, you know, it was with Joan Jett and Lita Ford. You know, that, they were the opening act for, their, for Boston on that uh, first Boston tour. And so it was just interesting. It kind of came already came, came full circle. Here I am, you know, watching Joan Jett at 15 years old or 14 years old or whatever it was. And then next thing you know, I'm working for her. And, um, so did that for a while. Unfortunately, Neil Bogart, uh, who ran Board- Boardwalk, which is the label that I worked at, um, he ended up getting cancer and he passed away. And so the label went under. And this was just as things were on the up and up. We had, um, you know, number one album with John Jets, I Love Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. And um, had artists like Ringo Starr and Curtis Mayfield, uh, just to sign Night Ranger. Um, 
So there was interesting things going on. It was kind of like all over the place, which is very typical of record labels back in the day, you know, that especially the major ones. Are sem- I think it's still sem- that way, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a semi, semi-major label. But um, I did that. And um, anyways, the, the record label, they sold everything over to MCA. It was a big depression in the record industry. All these labels were laying people off. Uh, I had pretty much given up on school by this point. I was just pretty much working for the record label full time. I went in from actually college promotion to doing singles promotion for them because of this. I had actually with Joan Jett, I just rode the wave of her popularity mm-hmm. uh, really through no effort of my own. But um, I just, you know, I got number one on the college charts. So they said, hey, wow, our first number one album, you know, even if it's college, but let's let's hire this kid, you know, full time. So I <laughs> nice. went on doing singles promotion and I rode the next wave, you know, of from Joan going from college to the all the, the, the you know, the, the national uh, radio. Um, and then, of course, when her album hit number one, that was the week Neil died. It was just like a just, you know. Wow. You, like you reach it, then yoink, you know, <laughs> they just, yeah. they, there's that success and just the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. And um, so anyways, um Neil's wife, Joyce, sold the um, all the label to MCA, all the artists and everything, for the most part, went over to MCA. Um, I was without a job. I decided to go back to school and decided to transfer to San Diego, blah, blah, blah. Didn't do much down there, except I played in bands, you know, and stuff. And um, eventually, I got another internship, and this time I was at a paramedic magazine. And this is like the weirdest backdoor coincidence, wacky thing you can imagine. Like, okay, paramedics, I mean, whatever. It's But they, because um, I wasn't paid, they did little favors for me and they sent me up to a magazine seminar up in Los Angeles. And when I was there, um, Don men, who was the publisher of guitar player magazine was there. Okay. And it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go over and introduce myself and just, you know, told him, Hey, I'm, you know, currently working at this paramedic magazine, the journal of emergency medical services. Gems <laughs> is what it was called. I didn't even know that but, was a thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was crazy. But uh, anyways, I, I tell him, you know, I'm working at this magazine, but I read, you know, guitar player voraciously probably for the last, you know, 10 years or so. And uh, if you have any openings ever, I'd be interested. And I actually tried to enter through the advertising department through sales. I'm really not a very good salesman, but I figured, well, that I just, for some reason, being a writer, a guitar player, to me, seemed untouchable. It seemed like, just don't even go there, like try and weasel your way in, you know, and maybe through the ad <laughs> department and then maybe you can work your way over or whatever. So that, that was my, my, my modus operandi. And, you know, we struck up a conversation and it went really well. And I stayed in touch with them over the years. And, you know, I finished up college and then I decided to go out and look for, you know, work again for real and went through just hell. You know, I I tried to go into advertising and that was going nowhere. And then suddenly I I saw an opening in the musical instrument industry and I interviewed at JBL and had a great interview there, but just missed out. was like the second guy in line, some guy who had completely relevant experience, got the job ahead of me, but that encouraged me. So I started looking at all the various musical instrument companies around Los Angeles and Southern California, ended up working for Roland. I uh, went there for four years, worked my way up the ranks from doing a billion brochures and catalogs because, you know, <laughs> Roland puts out something like 200 products a year, at least they did back in that, that time. That was really the salad days for them in the, the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. And it worked my way up to artist relations and media relations. So I was dealing with artists and I was dealing with all the magazines, you know, and buying advertising and everything. 
And so again, my, I already knew the people at Guitar Player Magazine, and I was really dealing with them constantly, as well as Guitar World and Guitar for the Practicing Musician and Keyboard and every you know music magazine out there basically in the day. And ended up getting fired, actually, because I was a little bit too generous with, um, with loaning gear out to artists. <laughs> and one day yeah, that'll do this, it. They looked at the spreadsheet. And the problem was, is like, you know, even though Roland, we didn't give gear to artists, um, you know, we would cut them deals or whatever. But we didn't we didn't have an endorsement thing where we gave stuff away. But some artists just, you know, once you got it, it was like, oh, my God, you just had to send the collection dogs after them. Yeah, a lot of people flaked out. So... Uh, anyways, I ended up getting fired and it, I was like hardly even two weeks had passed and I get a call from, uh, oh my gosh, well, I can't remember the guy's name now, but I get a call from the guy who's in charge of the, the division, all the, the magazines at, um, Miller Freeman basically, which was where guitar player magazine was and says, mm-hmm. do you want to work for us? I'm like, hell yes. <laughs> and I'm like, what in advertising? And it's like, no, as a writer. And I'm like, wow, really? I'm like, Yeah. And it kind of blew me away because they had their eye on me. It was really weird um, because I, I wrote some stuff for the Roland Users Group magazine back in the day, mm-hmm. uh, some articles. And for some reason, they liked my style, which I thought was really odd. But they just, I think they liked my personality. They liked my writing. And I actually had done a few interviews, too. I'd actually done some stuff uh, with the Big Yes reunion tour that happened. And... But anyways, I was on the radar and they they offered me a gig and I freelanced for about five or six months or so. And then the next thing I know, I'm I'm moving up to the Bay Area, you know, to go work for them. And that was like probably late 91, early 92 or so. And that was just that's was that's where the journey kind of began. Wow. So I mean, really. It seems like you, yeah, you had a lot of beginnings. It seems like yeah, a, a lot of a lot of false starts. You know, a lot of close brushes. You know, I mean, even the band that I was playing in um, after the record label, we mm-hmm. came really close to going places. Um, it was this the band's name was awful. It was called the French Raps, like French rap sun, you know, wrap around sunglasses. Uh, very new wave, um, but we had a big following in North San Diego County. We used to do a lot of promotion and um, up and down the you know the Pacific Coast Highway and on the telephone poles, we put up posters. And it was great because um, it, the band was all family members except for me. So they pulled all their money together. They had lighting. They had a big PA system. And we would go and rent out halls and just promote the hell out of them and get like 3,000 to 5,000 people to show up. Wow. And make a wow. ton of money. Yeah. You know, and and we played really short, sweet sets, you know, um, a couple originals, a lot of really well-selected covers. And we would play like 45 minutes to an hour, and that was it, no encores. And we always left, you know, the thing was to leave people wanting more. And we had a couple people that were management, you know, who worked both in San Diego and had some acts in San Diego that had had some success up in up in Hollywood. Um, that were after us, you know, bidding after us. And unfortunately, half the band wanted to go in that direction. The other half wanted to just stay doing what we were doing in San Diego. And they were fully comfortable with the money we were making doing Mm -hmm. that. And they didn't want to get ambitious and go and do showcase gigs and everything like that. So the band ended up breaking up. So, oh, well. The age old story, right? But still getting three to 5,000 people to come to a show is no easy feat. Like nowadays, no. if you get if you get a hundred people to show up, you're killing it. You know, it's crazy to think of three to five k showing up on a random you know 
Wednesday or whatever to yeah well usually it was it was weekends it was definitely it was weekend shows mm-hmm. and um, we would rent out um, big fortunately there was big places to rent out um, the the Del Mar Fairgrounds when there wasn't the fair wasn't going on in the summertime and that was usually just around like late June and July they had all these big halls that are just sitting there empty okay so we used to rent out um, space at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. And it was all set up with electricity and everything like that. And it was just really easy to go in there. And it was a big, huge rooms that you could just pack people into. Um, and not even pack it in. There was plenty of room to breathe. You know, you could probably fit some of those halls, probably 6,000 people easily, you know, 7,000 sometimes. Wow. Um, but we would we would work with the other bands that were really hot in San Diego, too. Um, Stevie Salis had a band called This Kids. Um and um, he used to play, used to, they started out playing uh, like UFO and stuff like that, which is why they, they were called This Kids. But as the 80s progressed, they did police covers and they almost did almost, they were almost like a police tribute band. Like they did like one police song after the other. <laughs> it was just crazy. It was just like they almost played like all, almost the first two albums and a good part of the third album. But um, <clears throat> anyways, it was, um, it, I think it partially was, we were North San Diego County, so we weren't quite Hollywood. And we weren't San Diego either, so you had a lot of bored kids. Gotcha. And <clears throat> we kept our ticket prices pretty low. And like, as I said, we had all the equipment and everything, so that made it really easy. We didn't, we weren't in the in the hole for having to rent a PA system and rent lights and everything. Right. So, And since it was our equipment, we got to control the sound. We got to control the lights, so we looked better. We sounded better than the other bands. <laughs> so it all worked to our advantage. They were very, very smart. But that's, um, that's great. unfortunately, they just didn't, you know, like I said, half of them didn't have the ambition. They wanted to stay at home and they were content. I mean, like, I, I, you can't complain. The money was decent. You know, I mean, we made a lot of money on those shows, but um, it's just, I, I get it's that. sustainable. I get that. Like, I, I, it doesn't sound very romantic, right? But like, I, part of the reason I never pursued a, like, career in a band or anything was because I was like, man, I hate the idea of touring i hate road trips yeah. like yeah. i i don't want to do that like i love the idea of playing shows like even, even me i'm more of a studio guy than a than a you know live person uh, i love recording and being in the studio so much hi i'm vincent and i'm here to talk about the marriage my dad's always going on and on about how cool maris is He really went off on one about the Mercury X the other day. He said something about a 4,800 hertz sample rate and 99 preset locations in 33 banks and something along the lines of the most advanced reverb pedal ever devised by man? That's all true, but I only care about one thing. This pedal sounds sick. So make sure you check out the Mercury X and all the other fine products at Maris.us, as well as fine retailers worldwide. All right, Dad, now can I have my Pocky? How exactly do artists get their music on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, all these services? How in the world... Do you get your music there? Well, in the past, you had to use something called a record label. But these days, you can use DistroKid. DistroKid is the absolute easiest way to get your music up on streaming services. And it's the most affordable way to do so. 
Not only do plans start at $22.99 for the entire year, that's less than two bucks a month, DistroKid also does not take a cut of your streaming revenue, unlike some other services out there. Even better if you sign up by going to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. That's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. One more time, that's ToneMob.com slash DistroKid. You'll get 30% off. That's right, 30% off. They're already extremely reasonable prices. So go to ToneMob.com slash DistroKid and get your music out there. But... Man, the idea of like traveling place to place and eating gas station food. And so I was like, that sound that sounds like not the life for me. So I can yeah. understand the the people like, hey, we're making good money right here in San Diego. Why do I want to go travel around the country in a van? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I, I could see the point too, because you know, having been working at a record label before that, I saw so many good bands. I my office is right next to Bruce Bird's office, who he was the AR guy mm-hmm. at um, Boardwalk at the time. And I'd hear all these great tapes, you know, that he was playing. And it was something caught my ear. I'd run over to the office and say, well, what do you think? You know, are you going to go after them? It's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. We can probably only sell X amount. And um, this the mentality in the major record labels of the day of of the the early 80s was just kind of asinine. You know, they they just spent way too much money. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was of the mentality. I came from, you know, partially a punk rock background. And even saw what Van Halen did, you know, with just rushing in and out of the studio on a minimal budget. Sure. Um, you know, and it's just like, but you can make a record for $50,000. You can make a record, you know, for whatever. You don't have to be like Fleetwood Mac and spend, you know, a half a million, a million, a million and a half to make a record. Right. It's not necessary. And, um, you know, do you, do you have to sell everything? Does everything have to go platinum? Does everything have to go gold? You know, if you can keep your costs down up front, then you can be successful. But they just they didn't see things that way. It was like spend a lot of money and hope to make a lot of money. It's so weird how that's changed, right? Because now it's yeah. like you record a whole record in your bedroom for almost free if you don't count your equipment costs, you know. And some of these people end up selling out arenas. You know, that's a very yeah. rare, rare, rare occurrence, of course. But the fact that it's even possible is no, true bizarre compared to back then it's like oh we got to spend 500 grand to do this record it's like what man if i had 500 grand i don't think i'd invested in a record (laughs) agreed i agree i agree yeah it was just it was it was weird weird times Uh, it was like the 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 last days of excess i think too because it was just uh man the the I can remember like coming into the office and like we'd have every day there'd be like a, a catered deli tray from Greenblatt's Delicatessen. That sounds you know? pretty nice. I like yeah, the sound it was of that. Like, but... it, was, it was nice stuff. It was good, you know, good, you know, not not cheap, um, you know, bagels and blocks and the whole thing. And, mm. Mm. You know, <laughs> and then the fridge was always stocked with imported beers, you know, and everything. And um and there were there were other um, accessories around the office, you know, if you needed that, you know. <laughs> um, but it would be just come in, you know, in the morning, you know, make something from the deli tray, grab a beer from the fridge, you know, and whatever, and then hit the phones. I mean, it know? sounds like a good time, you know. But... It was a good time. It was fun. <laughs> I'm tempted to write a movie script on some of my experiences. I mean, I didn't want to. It wasn't exactly almost famous, but here I was, 18 years old. And just kind of thrust into this whole whirlwind of the music industry and um, a lot of debauchery, you know, just <laughs> a lot of um, 
uh, I can remember going to see a band. One of the girls who was a receptionist um, really liked this one band. And I went to this place in the Valley and it was almost like, you know, almost famous meets Boogie Nights kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I, I show up at the door, it was this discotheque in the Valley um, that this band was playing. It's called Be Wild. And um, <laughs> I show up and, you know, I, I, I used to go into a, a Hollywood nightclub and being on a guest list and there was, didn't really have any guest list or anything. So I show up at the door, you know, whether you're supposed to pay to get in and say like, oh, I'm here from Boardwalk, you know, and show my business card expecting to be on the guest list. And the guy's like, hold on a second. You know, I'm like, oh, geez, what, I'm going to have to pay to see this band? You know, bummer. <laughs> you know, and he goes off and he comes back with the lead singer of the band. And the guy's like, oh, my God, you know, hey, yeah, come on come back with me, come backstage and everything like that. Meet the band. You know, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, all right. And, um, I remember hanging out and like, and then the band's getting ready to play. And like, <laughs> Brian likes, this is my wife here. I, why don't you dance with her? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, wait, hold on. Wait. And he was literally pushing his wife on me to do favors. Right. Essentially. You yeah. know, Cause he thought I was going to sign them and it's like, dude, you know, it's like you, it was just, it was just weird. You're That's like, I'm just here to see the show, but dude, like, I don't know what you're thinking. It's going to yeah, happen he here. Was, yeah. I mean, he thought I was there to, to sign them and everything like that. And he was doing everything he could to, to seal the deal. You know? Wow. Yeah. My, how the, my, how the times have changed. Right. You know, yeah. it, it was only, it's been a weird few years for everybody. Right. But right before the pandemic lockdowns happened, I was just now getting to the point with the show that I was getting to go backstage and do some interviews and things like that was a, a relatively new thing for me, you know, 2019, 20, 2018, 2019 is when that started happening. Right. And, and it was happening more and more. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm getting to go back. And, yeah, you've experienced this. I'm getting to go back and talk to some of my favorite artists. This is so awesome. And then boom, lockdown happened. We're back to, you know. Uh, zoom calls and whatnot right for, right uh, which is uh which was fine i was used to that i'd been doing that for years at that point but now going things are opening back up and some of that stuff is starting to happen again and i i'm constantly reminded you know you you talk about in the you know the early 80s how there's all this debauchery and these weird things happening now you go back there and it's like we have carrot sticks yeah. <laughs> here's a bag of doritos like yeah. it's not it's not quite as a i'm sure there are some artists that get up to some pretty intense shenanigans but again just how the times have changed it's pretty chill backstages these days at least the Definitely, ones that i've been yeah. i've been to i mean it's funny because actually you know i don't want to talk about the record label stuff too much but i was um actually i was after motley crew Whoa. you know when they were, they were <laughs> the kings of the club scene in hollywood you know and um, I was like one of the people out there trying to, I, that's one band I was trying to get signed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Bruce and I, I we, I, we talked about it quite a lot. We got in a bidding battle with Electra, um, which we lost of course, because Electra got them. But, um, but that was interesting. I mean, it was kind of like, it just, it was weird because, um, I've told this story before where there was actually, we had a reception. It was, um, this band called the Innocents with Thomas Newman, you know, Tommy Newman at the time, but Thomas Newman, the, the film composer, you know, or the famous Newman. Oh plan, yeah. 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 You know, and everything. He had this band called the Innocents, which is this kind of put together new wave band. And they did this horrible, horrible television special on the Sunday night, which the saving <laughs> grace was, it was up against 60 minutes, which at that time was the top rated show in the country. 
And um, it was just horrible. It was just the making of a band kind of thing. It was like the pseudo documentary thing. And it was so bad and so fake. And then after the show played on television, we had a little, you know, party at the whiskey and um, the innocence went and played on stage and everything. And um, I'm sitting there with my girlfriend and I'm this rockabilly punk rock guy. And my girlfriend's this Japanese punk rocker. And we're sitting at this table. And of course, you know, I'm all 18, 19 years old. And Nikki Six and Vince Neil come in, you know, all glammed out as they were back in the day. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, um, you know, just the height of their glam look. But um, they come up and with a bouncer and they tried to kick me off my table. And I just I had a bar tab that said Boardwalk Records on it. And I just held that up and said, uh, I belong here. And this is my party. You know, right. Right. Yeah, you know, this is my cup, co- my company's party. So they went and kicked somebody off of another table or whatever. But as they're walking away, I'm flipping them off, going like, you know, <laughs> "I tried to sign you, assholes." All right, you know? <laughs> dude, be careful with this ego, you know, <laughs> especially at a record label, you know, thing that you know you're really not invited to. You just got in because you know the, all the guys at the whiskey know you. So, oh well, whatever. It's such a it's such a bizarre mindset to to think about because I couldn't even I couldn't even fathom trying to do that even if I was like being led into something in a special way or whatever. I've, if the table's full, I'm like, well, I guess the table's full. Uh, yeah, I'll find yeah. I, it's hard for me to even process like the ego that it would take to try to kick somebody out of a table who who cares who it is. I don't care yeah, who it and, is. Any, I'm talking anybody. about at a, at a private record label. Thing. It wasn't open to the public. It wasn't like a regular night at the whiskey. It was a private function, you know. Right. So that even then, the, <laughs> just the balls of them to do that. Oh well, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Hopefully, they grew up a little bit. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they still got time. <laughs> they still got time. Yeah, they still yeah. they still can. We'll still hold yeah. out for them. <laughs> so we yeah we got way sidetracked. So you ended up after all, all this craziness, you ended up a guitar player as yeah. a on-staff writer full-time. And it's that had to have been just like the little kid in you had to have been like, what? What is going on right now? This is crazy. Was it oh, like yeah, absolutely. Was it surreal at first? It was surreal at first, yeah. Because it's, I mean, it was definitely a dream. I mean, talk about a dream job. That was like my dream job. I mean, that was like, I, I had read the magazine just voraciously as a kid, you know, memorized it like it was the, the flipping, you know, Old Testament of the Bible or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and to be working with these people, you know, like Jazz Obrecht, you know, who it, there was actually a pretty big staff change at the time, too. So it wasn't um, like people like Tom Wheeler were gone, Tom Mulhern were gone. They still were involved in various ways, but not they weren't there day to day. So it was Joe Gore. Uh, Jazz Obrecht was one of the only guys still hanging around. Art Thompson had kind of come in and Andy Ellis, Andy Witters Ellis at the time had come along. Um, they, I was actually hired initially to do gear reviews mostly. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. I love that. Sure. I love gear, yeah. Yeah. you know, and everything. But at the same time, I also liked interviewing artists. So I kind of just pushed myself in both directions. And um, landed some really good very familiar, good actually. <laughs> yeah. It landed, landed some really good interviews. Um, one thing was, um, gosh, early on, I got Jeff Beck. Um, wow. When he did the Crazy Legs, or the, the Gene Vincent tribute album, because uh, I was a big Rockabilly fan. So I knew a lot about Rockabilly stuff. And um, it was actually kind of crazy because just before that, I had done some preliminary work. And 
they had a great Rolodex at Guitar Player Magazine. It was incredible. You know, old school Rolodex, you know, with the cards and everything. Yep. With phone numbers and contacts. And I saw a contact for Cliff Gallup. Now, I knew Cliff Gallup was dead, you know, who was Gene Vincent's guitarist for a very short period in the mid-50s. And um, I thought, well, I'll call that number anyways and see if his, his widow is around. Maybe I can talk to her. Right. You know, so I called her up and talked to her. And man, it was like the greatest thing because Cliff Gallup was notoriously reticent. And just, you know, even when Dan Fork did an interview with him, he didn't really say very much, very guarded. Um, but Dolores, you know, was just like, oh, my Lord, she just like told me everything I wanted to know about her husband. She was so proud, you know. And, oh, that's um, so awesome. It was just like I got all these these great details. So. Anyways, when I'm trying to line up the Jeff Beck interview, and I, I hear it's going to be this, this Gene Vincent tribute and everything, so I'm talking with Ralph Baker, his manager before, and Ralph's kind of like feeling me out because he's not really sure like who this new kid is and everything, and you know, so he asked me, "All right, um, which amplifier did Cliff Gallup use?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, in the interview with Fort, he talked about using a Standell." That was Grady Martin's, you know, at the the Quonset Hut Studios where they did the recordings. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, he actually used a Fender day to day on stage with, you know, with, um, you know, with the booth, the blue caps and everything. And he was like, that's no, that's not correct. It's just a standell. And it's like, no, I know. It's like, well, how do you know? It's like. I talked to his widow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All of a sudden, his demeanor changed. And he's like, oh, wow. Okay, well, you know something we don't. Because they both were like, you know, digging deep into all this Cliff Gallup lore and everything. Sure. So that turned out to be an incredible interview. That was like, that's still like one of my, my all-time highlights. Because Jeff is and was my my guitar hero, along with Eddie Van Halen and a handful of other people. And so I'm flying out to England. And this is around Christmas time. And, um, you know, I'm staying out uh, by Gathway Airport, out kind of in the countryside, and Ralph picks me up, and we drive in for about 45 minutes to where Jeff's manor house is, uh, built in 1512. Wow. Um, <laughs> and we drive in, and the gate's locked, you know, and his manager goes and tries to find a, a phone link because it's like there's no service out there. And this is, of course, the early days of cellular phones anyways. Mm -hmm. Couldn't get through to Jeff. So we ended up having to jump the fence <laughs> at his house <laughs> and walk up this dirt road. And it was actually, I, I, I love the fact that we had to do that because it was so cool. Instead of driving up in a car and rolling up there, walking up this dirt road, tree-lined dirt road kind of on the side of a hill and you come around the bend and there's this house and it's ancient and there's Jeff's hot rods in a garage down the way and everything and then you know bangs on the door this big huge wooden carved door opens up and there's Jeff you know in this house and it was just it was so incredibly cool and um at first, he doesn't even say hello to me. He kind of has his back to me and everything like that. And then we kind of settle down with some tea and everything. And um, the, the one thing with somebody, um, we had this guy, Ross Garnick, who was in our ad department. And he talked about when musician, he used to be at Musician Magazine. He talked about, well, we used to bring Jeff gifts when we interviewed him, like Hot Rod Magazines and stuff like that. So I got some Hot Rod Magazines. But we're talking about, what can we do? Can I get him like some some obscure 32 Ford part or something like that and bring it to him? We're talking about what kind of gifts. 
And suddenly, I think it was Jazz had the um, the, the bright, the light bulb moment of we have Cliff Gallup's guitar picks because they oh. did these pick posters. Yeah, and it was a thumb pick, and um, was it a thumb pick? I can't remember if it was a thumb pick or if it was a big triangular flat pick. Now I'm trying to remember. It might have been a big triangular flat pick, and some metal, um, some metal finger picks, and they were flattened out. <laughs> And they had the little card that they sent to him. And he actually just wrote his answers on the card and sent the card back along with these picks. So I presented those to Jeff. And it was just like, for him, it was like, oh, my God. It was just like, you know, I, the Holy Grail, you know. Yeah. Um, he he just was over the moon. It was like the coolest gift I possibly could have given him. And he just opened up so completely from that moment onwards. Um, mm-hmm. And I've had a great relationship with Jeff pretty much. I mean, I haven't interviewed him in a, in a quite a while, but I've had several really good, good interviews with Jeff. Um, and that's just partly, you know, knowing stuff, but being able to tell him stuff about Cliff Gallup, because I really spilled the goods to him from what, my interview with Dolores, um, Dolores or Doris, I can't remember now, but um, so it's like lunch lady, you know, but um, in Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> but um anyways um i had all this information so i i you know gave him these pics i told him all this stuff that she told me i put him in contact with her which was oh, even there better because when yeah. he was on tour he went over and visited with her and actually got to see cliff's guitar and amp and all this other stuff you know memorabilia and stuff so anyways that was just it was really you know my, my tip to any writers out there do your research you know especially you know if you if somebody's into something and you know what then because that's like jazz actually had that whole thing with um blues artists i mean you know, he, he knew a lot about blues artists so he got along very well with keith richards because keith was very much a blues scholar and so jazz was able to offer all this information to to keith because he knew so much about blues artists right um so and that's actually my my very first interview i ever did was with pete anderson you know when he was still with dwight yoakam and i did a ton of research about pete and pete's still a good friend to this day um, but he complimented me afterwards, like, wow, you really know stuff about me. You know, you're just not asking me a bunch of generic questions, but you're asking me insightful stuff, you know, and you know stuff about me and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, that's always been my thing about doing interviews is just get to know your subject, you know. Mm-hmm. When, so. you, when you conduct an interview, like, obviously you're writing, which is different than what I'm doing. But yeah. Are yeah. you recording that while you do Oh, yeah. It? Okay, I, I assume recorded- so. Every interview, you know, I, I know I, some of my friends came from this old school newspaper thing and they, they write, jot down stuff. And it's like, I can't do that. And to me, it's just better to turn the recorder on and not have to worry about all this other stuff and just engage in the conversation. We are brought to you today by Sweetwater, specifically the gear exchange. You may have heard about this. This is a place where you can go to buy and sell your used gear. Maybe you got a pedal over there that's just kind of collecting dust. Maybe there's something you've been eyeing from the Sweetwater catalog. Well, right now is a great time to turn that unused gear into something you're actually going to use. Even better, if you sell on the gear exchange, you can keep 100% of the sale as long as you choose a Sweetwater gift card as your payout method. That is not too shabby because... Let's be honest, most of this buying and selling we do is just to fund new gear purchases, and that is a great way to reach a wide variety of customers and keep 100% in your pocket, or rather, on your pedal board. So go check out the Sweetwater Gear Exchange and turn that unused gear into something that's actually going to help you write 
that next huge riff. Hello there. I'd like to introduce you to your new best friend, the Chase Bliss Audio Lossy. Lossy is a collaboration between Chase Bliss and Good Hertz. It's meant to give you some control over those weird digital artifacts that come with very compressed audio. You're getting it right now. All the changes that are taking place are strictly coming from my plane dynamics. I'm just interacting with the pedal and letting it do its thing. And some true stereo goodness. If you'd like some more details about Lossie, I'd invite you to head over to chaseblitzaudio.com. Have you thought about putting that out there, those recordings? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of doing some of that. Um, I just started a YouTube page. I did a Wolfgang Van Halen, just a snippet, because he was talking about playing at at Wembley. And I wanted to get that out there timely. But um, I thought, gosh, I've got all these tapes. I, I have all my tapes. And um, I'm thinking about just putting that stuff out finally on YouTube. And I just have to get around to the labor you know doing i that. hear you well you should yeah. you should you should put them out on youtube but you should also set up a, a audio podcast feed as well you true. might as well, we'll yeah talk, absolutely we'll, true we'll talk about this after the show we'll, cool we'll, sounds we'll, good we'll, we'll get into that <laughs> this needs to happen because people these those would be a gold mine for people people would love oh, yeah. to sit i mean reading them's cool right but, but you got to hear it. There's another layer to it than you. Yeah, that's. I was it. always envious of like the radio and you know the broadcasting stuff because I mean writing is a is a bitch anyways. It's just it's 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 chore and it's lonely and transcribing. I just I hate it. Um, that's the worst part for me is transcribing interviews afterwards. I mean sometimes it depends. If the interview is really good, then I kind of enjoyed the transcribing process. But still, it's it's, it's labor. Yeah. Um, but my my link I did an interview with Link Ray. This is another interesting story. It took oh, me man. a long time to find him at the time because um he lived out in the middle, I think it was Denmark or something like that, one of those Nordic countries. Um his wife Olive, um, you know, they they lived out in the boonies. They didn't even have a phone at the house. And I remember he was putting a record out, I think it was through Creation Records in the UK. So I contacted Creation in the UK and they said, like, well, what you gotta do is <laughs> like we have to call this guy and then this guy runs over to Link's house, you know, and then you have to schedule something and it's just it was this whole crazy <laughs> thing. But at least I found him. It took me a, a long time to find Link and then um, finally got him, got him on the phone. And man, what a just a wonderful, crazy nut. Um, he and you, you got to hear the inflection of his voice and everything. I actually had it as my answering machine message back in the you remember answering machine messages? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, God gave me, God gave me, um, you know, I'm not religious, man. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, man. But God gave me, God me, gave me, um, rumble. You know, just bam, not in my head, man. One day, just at the, at the, at the sock hop, man. I'm playing it and just, you know, he gave it to me, man. We kicked, we kicked Pat Boone's ass. You know, <laughs> it was just awesome. You got, you just got, you can't write that, right? You know, yeah. you got to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you could write it, but it wouldn't make any sense. Like, I, I understand kind of what you're saying now. Like, yeah, you just like, you got to hear his voice and the inflection mm-hmm. and the excitement mm-hmm. and everything. And um, 
and just oh, it was just it was wonderful, you know. Oh man! Uh, and my my Billy Gibbons interview was another one. My first interview with Billy Gibbons, where it was just this whole jokes beforehand, where he imitated a Mexican guy calling me like as a wrong number. And, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> It's like I, I had no idea. It was actually well after the interview. Well, not well after, about a month or well, actually, it was right after the interview. I finished it up, and I was in Nashville, and I went. I was doing some interviews in Nashville. Actually, another great experience. <laughs> but um, I was hanging out with this guy Leroy Parnell, mm-hmm. and um, he's a friend of Billy Gibbons. And he happened to ask me, like, I told him about my whole ordeal. It's like a long, crazy story, but because um, it was just a, a, one practical joke after the other that he did, and that's very typical of Billy Gibbons. And he says, you don't happen to have the tape, do you? And I was like, well, actually, I do. Because I brought it with me because I just had submitted the story before I took off on this trip. And I brought the tape just in case I had to check anything. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I go up to my hotel room, come back down to the car, and we pop it in there. And, of course, those crank calls are the first things on the tape because I was recording because I'm expecting Gibbons to call, right? Right, right. <laughs> and he hears the Mexican guy, and he's like, that's Gibbons. Like, that's Gibbons. I'm like, damn, I figured out who was him. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was supposed to start, it was like an, an afternoon on the Saturday or something like that. He was supposed to call me. And he, you know, first I get these, these, this Mexican guy who just kept on calling me. And then, like, a couple hours late, Gibbons calls me up and, like, man, we're, we're running late. You know, uh, we're going to have to reschedule another, you know, can we do it like, uh, you know, uh, in another hour? And it's like, okay, fine. And then another hour passes and like, no, no call. So maybe a little bit after that, half hour, then he calls and is like, ah, still run late, run late. And finally he's like, let's make it a midnight run, you know, after like about three aborted attempts. And I'm like, okay, midnight, great. You know? Sure, yeah, all right. So, okay, midnight. And um, and then even from then, it like, you know, he calls me up and like, I think this was actually like, it was probably like about, I remember this is like about 1130 when he decided to say a midnight, it was going to be a midnight interview mm-hmm. and we're talking you know, for like 20 minutes. <laughs> and then she says like, you know, at 1130 when he calls me, he says like, call me in a half hour, you know? And then we start chatting about stuff. And then he's like, uh, then he says something about let's make it a midnight run or whatever. So I'm thinking, okay, well, he said a half hour and he said midnight. So, uh, so midnight seems like the time. Well, of course, midnight, Oh, they, I remember what it was. He told me to call him at a specific number. It says, when you call this number, you're going to hear this answering machine message. Start talking and just keep talking until I pick up. Okay. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I don't want to go into too much details because, I mean, this is a very long story that's all drawn out. But it just like it was just insane. It was just really nuts. I was on the phone with Billy. Finally, by the time I finished up, it was 430 in the morning. So got the interview. Um, and then we ended up like spending two hours just chatting, you know, with the, with the record, it was the recorder off, unfortunately, but oh, he just, man. you know, yeah, he was just like, it turn the recorder off and let's just, you know, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That happens so. too. It, the only thing I can relate to with that, and I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but, uh, I, I, at one time was trying to get, uh, Bill Finnegan to do this show. I'd interview right, a, lot yeah, of, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of pedal people. Uh, for the listeners, most of you probably know who that is. That's the guy who the made the clone. So we, we exchanged some emails and he, uh, he said, uh, well, let me, let me call you. I'm going to call you. And this was back before there, uh, most of the phones had like robo call blockers, right, where right, it's like, right. it pretty much just blocks any number that I don't know. It just sends to voicemail. Um, this was before that. He said, I'm going to call you from a private number. 
make sure you pick up at this time. And I was like, sure. And he just wanted to feel me out, see what kind of like, what, what was, was I trying to like pull one over on him or what? He was just trying to, he's, he's very guarded that way. Yeah. And um, he's like, well, I really don't have much time to do these things. That's how he started the conversation. And then we talked ra- about random guitar gear for over an hour. And I was like, yeah. I could, this could have been the show. This could have been the podcast. <laughs> we were talking about Link Ray and we were talking about all this stuff. I was like, in my head this whole time, I'm like, why can't I be recording this right now? This is perfect. Like, this is exactly what the podcast should be. Just us just hanging out and talking. Yeah. And uh, I and I was never able to, I didn't have his phone number, obviously. He called me from a, a private number. I still have his email address, but I've never been able to get him on the horn again. So, Bill, wow. if you hear this, I'd love to have you on, man. It would be a blast, Bill. I'm putting it out there into the universe. <laughs> It'd be so, cool. so much fun. <laughs> Uh, we had a good time talking the first time. We'll have a good wow. time the second time. But yeah, that's the, the Billy Gibbons thing. Is so, there's few people that could pull that off and have it be endearing. Yeah. You know, Billy Gibbons is one of the people that can pull that off. Like, so, most people are like, hey, you know what? I'm not, you know what? You've blown me off four times. I'm going to go do something else. But yeah. not Billy Gibbons. I'd be like, all right, you want to do it at midnight? We're doing it. All right, 4 30. What? Okay, we'll do it whatever that's how it was yeah Yeah. i was just like you know whatever you want to do billy it's like i mean plus i just had to make it happen i mean that was i you know that was the other thing it's like we didn't have too many alternatives you know for stuff if we if coverage was lined up usually that's you know you didn't have something to fill in and if you did you really had to scramble sure Um, sure but it it was funny because i mean it was just the whole process with him was so drawn out it went on for months like it was like one big practical joke that he played on me um it, that just it culminated with um, me going to their show in San Jose. And um, I mean, I saw him because we talked. It was a funny thing. We were very social after that. And we used to be a little bit more social than I haven't talked with Billy in quite a while now. But um, but, um, you know, he just he pulled this this prank on me that was just like it was so elaborate. And I remember actually Pete Anderson knows Billy very well, too. And he was just we, we swapped stories, you know, but Pete's got an incredible stories about I'm sure <laughs> like pretty much anybody who falls into his universe at some point has some story to tell about Billy he's just that that prolific of a prankster <laughs> yeah that's the thing and like you know everybody will talk about Billy's gear and and the things he said about his gear and I think a lot of people don't know that part about him that he yeah. like he messes with people so if he's got six x pandoras on his pedal board it's not there's a chance he's not using all of those oh like, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I know that i know that 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 chapter of billy i know very very well because uh bruce barr is a very good friend of mine mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately he passed away a while back and it got killed in an automobile accident oh um, man yeah it was just just tragic tragic end uh bruce was a great guy sound barrier and um down there in Chattanooga, Tennessee, great store that he had, all this great pedal stuff. He was really one of the the, the guys in the early, Not, I mean, pedal stuff has been interesting, but he really went out there and just grabbed all the really cool stuff, you know, yeah. and um, really promoted it and really did a lot for just the interest in, in wild, crazy, cool pedals. But um, yeah, with, with the Big Sonic thing, because he was a, the distributor of it at the time, and um Boy, did we have some adventures with Billy, you know, with, um, <laughs> with the promoting that whole thing. I mean, at the Super Bowl, this is a crazy thing. Like, I'm in my apartment, my tiny apartment in New York City on Super Bowl Sunday when ZZ Top was playing. And I'm talking with Billy like a half hour before he's going to go and perform in front of millions of people about how we can promote the Expandora. 
because they were wearing them on their guitar straps, him and Dusty. Oh, you know, that's they had right. Them on their guitar strap. I remember seeing yeah. some, some images of that. Yes, I forgot about yeah. that. And we that's were just wild. talking about ways. And I was writing a press release, you know, for Bruce and everything to promote it. And Billy's like sitting there, you know, he's he's analyzing it and critiquing it and everything. It's like, dude, you're going to be playing, you know, <laughs> the Super Bowls, the halftime show here in just a few minutes. And here we are going over a press release for a pedal, you know. I guess that just shows you how into it he really is, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing, uh, you know, a lot of it is like, yeah, with the expander or the six of them up there, that was obviously a prop, you know, he wasn't playing through that, all sure. of them and everything. He loved them. You know, but he he just loved to promote stuff too. You know, it's just like if he liked something, he would really get way behind it. That definitely, definitely, yeah. I've got a. Uh, I I thought I would never change the pickups in my first electric guitar. Uh, I just it, you know they were the they were nothing special. They were just the Gibson four ninety and four ninety eight. You know, humbuckers. Right. But I was just like, I really this is what I grew up playing. I I still really like how it sounds. And then I uh, I had the guy from Cream Tea on and he's like oh let me send you some of the whisker buckers i was like well what am i gonna put them in i was like well i'll swap them into that it's not permanent if i don't if if i want to swap it back i can swap it back no way those things sound great and at yeah, first i wasn't yeah. sure about it i was like because it was such a, a different sound but man i was like i can see why billy loves these so much these are sound insanely good that's like one of my best sounding guitars and it's the first electric i ever owned so wow very cool yeah he's um he's a connoisseur yeah that's mm -hmm. for sure he knows he knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Although I still can't play sevens or eights, I can't do that. I, yeah, I, I, no, that's that's a little bit nuts. I mean, it's <laughs> and it is true. I mean, I've played his guitars, and it's like, yeah, he's he's using the super super lights, you know. So I guess that that just proves he's got a better touch than I do because I'll just like bend those things out of tune and like yeah, that's too light it's for me. Funny because part of my big long story with him, um, I saw him at the Dallas Guitar Show. You know, he, he said, let's meet. He, call, he called me like right before the Dallas Guitar Show one year and said, like, I'm going out. You going out? And like, yeah, and it's like, well, let's meet up, you know. And it's like, OK, cool. I didn't make any plans. Just figured I'll probably stumble into him somewhere. And sure enough, I did at the nightclub there in Deep Ellum. Mm -hmm. And um, we're, I'm waiting in line with the, the schlubs, you know, to get into this club uh, for the show. And Gibbons walks in behind us. And my friend's like, Gibbons just walked in. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I, you know, he wanted to say hello. So I'm going to go say hi to him and um you know so i go to the club and he's standing in the back with some bouncer or some some security guy or something like that <laughs> this is this is again this is so billy but it's like i walk in and get billy hey chris gill guitar player magazine man we just talked you know and he's like puts out his hand and just like it was like <laughs> cold dead fish he's wearing gloves too on oh, top no. of it. And it's just like, it just, it was like the lightest handshake I've ever experienced in my life. It's like, I felt like I was going to crush his hand by grabbing it. <laughs> and he's just like, pleased to meet you. And he just, <laughs> and he just like, that's it. And like, just, you know, just like, like turns away and like, get out of here kind of thing. So, wow. and then the funny thing is afterwards, I'm outside with my friends and we're just, we're hanging around for some reason. I can't remember if we're waiting for somebody or what, but Gibbons comes out with his uh, girlfriend or wife. I don't know if he was married at the time. Um, gets into a cab, right? <laughs> and the cab pulls up and it stops right in front of my friends and I. Okay. And Gibbons is sitting there in the cab and he's staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like looking at me for like five minutes, just sitting there in the cab. 
And I'm like, oh, God, this is just weird. Oh, that's You know, fantastic. the guy gives me the cold shoulder in the club, and now he's sitting here staring at me. Uh, he, knew what he, he knew what he was doing. He oh, was, yeah, he knew what he was doing. He was just psyching me out. So yep. That's hilarious. You got to love it. See, this is what yeah. I knew. I knew we were going to have a good time. That's why I needed to get you on so I could get these stories. That's what oh, it was. Yeah, could go on i mean like i said it's it's a billion i mean you know it's you know it's i think i was lucky that i got there in a good time i mean i would have loved to have been around in the 70s and doing it but the 90s wasn't so bad because you had a lot of the the big names your big established guys you know you still had your van halens and your jeff becks and your tony iomis and everything like that but then you had dimebag daryl you know mm-hmm. and um i never interviewed kurt cobain i mean that was one thing that he kind of you know unfortunately was here and gone real very quickly and didn't really like doing guitar magazine interviews right um but we had that that era of grunge and everything like that you know i got to see some bands like corn come up through the ranks you know and become huge you know from starting out from very you know i did one of their very first interviews oh wow um, wow they're, they're, they're the only band that's ever given me a one of those riaa awards you know a, a gold record platinum record awards oh yeah in my entire career i know brad talinsky's gotten a whole bunch of them from everybody you know like joe satriani and steve Vai and whoever and the only band who's ever recognized me has been Corn. So. <laughs> well, hey, I, I I just got an eight string the other day, and I'm not going to say that Corn didn't have anything to do with that. I yeah, you know, no, and, definitely. That's um, they they resurrected the seven string guitar. You got mm-hmm. God bless them, man. Absolutely, yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, man, we're getting close to the end of the main episode, and I got a couple classic questions uh, I like to wrap up on. Uh, but before I do that, I like to give the guest the opportunity to take the stage and you know shout out anybody they want to shout out, you know, plug anything they want to plug, you know, uh, call out your aunt Tilly or whatever you want to do. This is oh this, boy, the floor wow. is yours. What can I say? Um, uh, what do I want to shout out? I, I you know I can't think of anything. I will say lately, one pedal that's really impressed the heck out of me is the the Maris delay. Oh, yeah, um, LBX. Yes, the LVX is mm-hmm. just uh, what a feat of engineering! Oh uh, my God, it almost makes it too easy though. It makes you just sound like an instant soundtrack composer. I know, <laughs> it's so and good. It's, you plug in and make a few droning notes, man, and you just sound like you are, you know, I, I don't even know what film sac- soundtrack composer you sound like, but it's just it's a thing of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just that stuff excites me, you know, as much as um, old tube amps and whatever. So I'll I'll shout that out for now. Well, they um, uh, that they are you know fans and listeners of the show. Everybody there, pretty much. So, great. The, Mar- the Maris crew is fantastic. Shout out Terry and Gina and everybody. Like ah, so good. Love those job people. well done. I'm just that's you know I, I get a lot of stuff to review all the time. I've got stacks of gear in my house and everything like that. But that's the one thing that just really made me sit up and go like, oh my god, this is just phenomenal. So. Well, hey, that sounds like it was pre-planned, but it wasn't. But they've supported the show in the past, and they've they've came on a few times. And I love the Maris people, so cool. Shout out everybody there. That's great. All right, final questions. Now I don't remember if we got into this. I feel like we kind of did, but I you know I do a lot of these, so my that all runs together in my brain a little bit. But uh, the classic questions I like to ask at the end of every episode. What are first one is what is your favorite boss pedal? Oh, my favorite boss pedal. Yeah, you asked me this last time, but I'm going to so. change. Okay, good. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. On that, right. because um, it, there's so many, you know. So, but, um, you know, I, I ignored it for years and have just recently, gosh, probably in the last six, seven months or so, I just bought one, a Boss SD1. 
Oh yeah. I got the 40th anniversary one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know why I avoided it for all this time, but I, I just love what that thing does, especially with the Marshall, especially with the JCM 800. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it's a match made in heaven. It's just, um, you know, everyone hyped the tube screamers and everything like that. And it's like the SD one is where it's at. You know, it's, it's got that does, does the stuff that the tube screamers should have done. Yeah, you know? I agree. Yeah. I know they're, they're similar topology from what my pedal making friends have told me, but I like the sonic range of the SD one better as well. I agree with yeah. you on that one. Definitely. Yeah, I just it's I think it hits that sweet spot for a certain style of of you know of distortion and it's just it's maybe it's because it sounds so recognizable. I mean everybody, not everybody, but you know, thousands of players have used them. Mm-hmm. And it's like you realize when you realize all the recordings are on, it's just like, oh, that's the sound I'm hearing, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of those things and people tend to dump on it, but I don't know why, because it's cheap and it sounds great. So it, it's true. It's true. Same with the DS1. DS1 yeah. sounds great too. Just got to be careful with that tone control. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's like well, a lot of the boss distortion things. Careful with the tone control. We talked before about the um, about the um, oh, uh, what's the the one? The metal zone. Yeah. Oh, yes. The yeah, metal yes. zone is like you've got to be very careful with the EQ on it. It mm-hmm. can give you a lot of different ranges, and there's a lot of bad settings in there. But if you find the right settings, they're really right. You mm-hmm. know. Oh, definitely. I posted a video here. Uh, I don't know, like three-ish weeks ago, something like that. And I was like, guess what pedal this is? And I just played some chuggy riff stuff. I, I was like, clean amp, ring, ring. And it was a very yeah. kind of pathetic sounding tone by itself, the way I had everything set. Stomped on the metal zone without showing anybody what it was. And a lot of people were guessing, like, is that a big muff? Like, what is that? And I, was, and I showed it in the next slide. Like, nope, it's a metal zone. You just got to be real careful with the EQ. You can get them sounding yeah. great. You really can. Yep. All right, so if I asked you that last time, then I almost certainly asked you about pizza last time. Are you gonna stick with the? Uh, you gonna stick with your pizza choice? I'm gonna change my pizza choice too. All right, because, I'm glad um, we're doing I, this. I, I am in. I'm in. You know, New Jersey, Northern New Jersey. So we've got Connecticut nearby. We've got Manhattan nearby. You know, we've got North Jersey, Central Jersey. You know, um, so I've got a lot of good places, and there's pieces that pop up. You know, all the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the newer places that popped up is a place called Mercado. Up in Northvale, up by the, the the New York New Jersey state line, northern, okay. um, and uh, it's Roman style pizza, and it's Roman just, um, style, really like you know the the crust is the secret because it's they do something with the, they get the Italian you know proper flour and everything like that, and they ferment it uh, like four or five days or something like that. Mm. Um, and the crust is just a thing of beauty, and then the toppings are all just you know super high class. It's not your cheap low rent you know generic cheese type of pizza joint it's really like good stuff you know and um so i'm gonna shout out mercado and mercado. Um, gosh, what is the pizza that i get from them it's called the diablo <laughs> so Ooh. so it's got like a spicy marinara and pepperoni uh i think it's the rosa the hormel rosa grande i believe is what they call it you know because it cups you know and everything and sure um trying to remember what else there's a couple different cheeses on there but it's just it's really really good stuff that sounds great i'm assuming this is probably like a wood-fired situation yeah definitely Mm wood-fired thing and they do what they call um they're kind of like big big oval slabs you know yeah so man that's not it's not the round pie it's a big and comes in a big huge long box it looks like you got a surfboard in it or something (laughs) that sounds fantastic i gotta try that 
add another thing to the list next time I'm over there. Wow, that sounds amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out. This was a blast, as I knew it would be. And uh, well, maybe we'll get into some more weird stuff on Patreon. What do you say? Absolutely. Thanks, Blake. All right. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. For Chris, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I appreciate you so, so, so much. And if you want to hear more, if you like this podcast and you want to keep it going and you want more episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash tone mob, where for five bucks a month, you will get access to additional shows every week, including this week, where there is additional conversation with Chris and I, and it is phenomenal. It really, truly, truly is. So check that out if you can. And if you don't like the new ad format, which I understand if you don't, but hey, I got to keep the lights on. I got kids to feed. If you don't like that, though, for $3 a month, you can get access to the ad-free feed where all of those things are gone and they do not exist. So check that out at patreon.com slash tone mob if you can. And please, as I asked for in the beginning of the episode, please share this with somebody. If you think it's cool, if you enjoyed it, if you like these conversations, please tell somebody about it. That is how this thing keeps going is with more and more listeners. So please, please, please do that if you can. And I appreciate all of you who have, again, put me in the top 5%. I'm the top 5% at something. And my mom said I was never going to amount to anything. Actually, she didn't say that. She was very supportive my whole life. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this one, and I will talk to you on the internet very soon. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. 
from Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>